2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, okay? Tonight we are starting our fall series on the Bible, Christian Basics. And tonight we're going to look at the Bible is the Word of God, okay? The Bible is the Word of God. I heard a story once of a man going on an airplane. He is going to fly out. He is going to fly on a plane. And while he's there, as older men sometimes do, they like to read this thing called a newspaper or a magazine. Okay? And so when he's there, he's looking through this place, looking for a newspaper or a magazine. And this other guy comes up and says, hey, what is it you're looking for? And he replies, I'm looking for a conservative newspaper. And the other guy replies, well, I'm looking for a liberal newspaper. And so the, the guy that said he was looking for a liberal newspaper asks this guy and says, well, what do you do for a living? And he says, well, I'm a preacher. And the guy says, really? Well, what does that look like? And so the preacher explains kind of what he does for a living and what that looks like. And the guy in his interest says, well, what all kinds of things do you read? I'm sure you read a lot as a, a preacher. And the guy replies, well, I read newspapers, magazines, articles, and I read the Bible. And the guy looks at him puzzled and says, well, don't you read more than that? And the preacher replies, no. Well, I mean, how, how do you, if, if you speak to people all the time, how do you know what people's problems are in life? And he replies, he says, well, there's only three problems in life. And so the first is sin, sorrow, and death. And the guy looks back at him and says, surely there's more problems than that. And the preacher says, name them. And after a while of thinking, the guy sits there and says, well, you're right. There's only three problems in life, sin, sorrow, and death. So man has only three problems. And the interesting thing with the Bible, the Bible can answer all three of these problems. The Bible can answer the problem of sin. The Bible answers the problem of sorrow. The Bible answers the problem of death. And a lot of times we like to think of our feelings and how we feel about this or we feel about that. But the thing we have to understand is our feelings come and go, but God's word never changes. We can trust his word. We can trust what he says. So why is it important? Why is it important to trust the Bible? Our salvation depends on understanding the gospel. That's one. Your assurance depends on resting in the truth of the Bible, that God will hold us. And that's something we're going to talk about these next few weeks as we look at Christian basics. How do I know that I'm saved? And how do I know that I'll stay saved? So our assurance and our salvation... Our spiritual growth depends on us studying and, and getting in God's Word and growing in what He has for us. Our power and our witness depends on how much we depend upon the Bible. If we start sharing the gospel with people like I hope, hope we do with these little life books and other tracks, and while I'm saying this, guys, everything on that back table, there's sign-up sheets, and then everything else is resources for y'all to go and give people, okay? So y'all take as much as you want, go give it out. If we need to get more stuff, we can get it. But those are resources for you to give people that don't have Bibles or need to track and share the gospel with them. And when you share the gospel with them, sometimes you're going to come up against people that try to challenge you with the Word of God. And when we witness, we have to stand firm in the Bible. We have to truly know that this is the Word of God. So, reasons to trust God's Word. 
The first reason to trust God's words is it is scientifically accurate. The Bible is scientifically accurate. Give you an example of this. In India, back in the day, they used to think that the earth was supported by elephants. Think about that for a second. The earth was supported by elephants. And so someone asked the question, what's holding the elephants up? And they have to think for a second. A turtle. A turtle's holding the elephants up. And that, that, that's, that, that sustains them for a while. And then they ask the question, well, what's, what's holding the, the turtle up? They come upon it's a snake. Snake, tortoise, elephant. I don't understand how that works. But they finally ask, say, well, what's holding the snake up? Well, the snake's swimming on top of water. And you can see that kind of logic continually to ask, well, what's holding that up? What's holding this up? If we go to the Greeks, the Greeks we see as the educated culture. You're going to read and learn about Greek culture for the rest of your academic life. Everyone is fascinated with it. Lucas is sitting here thinking, dear Lord, get me out of Western Civ. I'm tired of learning about these Greeks. But we learn about that in the Greeks. They had a belief that this God named who? Anybody want to take a guess? Zeus. Not Zeus. Atlas. A God named Atlas carried the world on his back. I mean, these are crazy thoughts to think of, but in the book of Job, it says the Lord God hangs the earth from nothing. Job is one of the oldest recording writings in the world. And he says, God hangs the earth on nothing that is sustained. Nothing is holding it up but God's power. Not only is it scientifically accurate that way, but also it's scientifically accurate when it comes to, to the blood, the blood flow. Back in the day, they thought the blood was poisonous, and when you were sick, it had to do something with your blood. George Washington dies from being bled, from being sickened, from being sick. They bled him with leeches. But God's Word also says that the blood is the life blood, that it circulates and it flows through the body. The Bible scientifically is never being proved as inaccurate. Even when it comes to creation, evolutionists go back to this thing called stardust, but they can't figure out where the stardust comes from. The Bible is scientifically accurate and it continues over and over and over again to prove its accuracy when being challenged by modern scientists. So we know the Bible is scientifically accurate. The other thing is it is also historically accurate. The Bible is historically accurate. The things in the Bible have been proven to be true. I mean, even when we go back to creation, and it lists two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. In Western Civ, Lucas, what's the first place you learn about? Mesopotamia. Which, what two rivers flow around it? Tigris and Euphrates River. Time and time again, as people are going and they're reading and they're, they're doing this research and they say, well, this never happened or that never happened. Through modern archaeology, time and time again, every year, they are finding new evidences that what was written in the Old Testament was true. That, that civilization really did exist. There was a time in the Old Testament where there were supposed to be two kings and people found that as a discrepancy. That there couldn't be two kings at one time and it was a father and a son. And the Bible clearly lays that out when modern archaeology came back and found writings of people that supported that there was two kings at one time. Not only that, if you look at historical accuracy, 
they said that there was no way that Moses, there, there was nobody that could write at the time that Moses was supposed to write. Modern archaeology found tablets that would be kind of like modern day postcards, if we think of it that way, of people that were writing back and forth between one civilization to another civilization. Our Bible is being proved again and again to be historically accurate. We can trust it that way. But not only is it scientifically accurate, not only is it historically accurate, it is also its wonderful unity. Now, if this doesn't sit here and kind of help us understand why we can trust the Bible as the Word of God, I don't know which one of these three would. Think about this. The Bible is what? This is one book. Okay? How many books are in the Bible? 66. How many are in the Old Testament? How many? 39. How many are in the New Testament? 27. Okay? Do the math. That adds up to 66. Within one book. Let's go even crazier than this. Okay? So there's 66 books within one book. How many authors? 40 plus, roughly. Depending on how some of the debated author books, who, who wrote them. 40 plus authors. Okay? Who wants to take a guess at how many years the writings of the Bible spans? 1,600 years, okay? From beginning to end, a time of 1,600 years. 40 different authors, 66 different books, 13 different countries, three different languages on three different continents, okay? So I want you all to envision this for a second. How many different little pieces I just mentioned? Three continents, 13 countries, 40 plus people. And the Bible doesn't have errors. It's proven to be scientifically accurate. It's being proven to be historically accurate. And does the Bible flow as one book? What did we, what did we learn last year? We learned the story. Creation, fall, promise, rescue, mission, return. The Bible is one big story telling what? The story of God. God redeeming and loving a people for himself. It flows perfectly. Perfect unity. One piece of the Bible does not contradict another. One piece of the Bible does not make another part of the Bible lie. That is unity. And the only way that is possible is through God's sovereign hand leading and guiding them. So the Bible is, we can trust it because it is scientifically accurate. We can trust the Bible because it's historically accurate. We can trust it because it's wonderfully in unity together. So if you have your Bibles, if you open up to 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed. It is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, cor for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let us pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for today, God. I thank you for this time of letting us get in your word. Lord, I pray, God, that we would know that we can trust the Bible as the word of God. And Lord, I pray that we would take it, read it, love it, and apply it to our lives. God, I thank you for these students. And God, I pray that you will speak to them tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So moving into the text tonight, that we can trust the Bible is the word of God, is the first thing we see in this text is that God inspired this book. It says all scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out. This image here is the same we see in the creation. When God spoke, 
and it was created. So all scripture comes from God. It is inspired by God. As Baptists, we hold to what's called verbal inspiration. And what that means in a nutshell is these 40 plus authors over 1600 years, 13 different countries and three different continents have the Holy Spirit leading and guiding them as they were writing the words of God. The, the very words that are written in our Bible are the very words that God led and intended to be written. Nothing is in the Bible that God did not desire to be, and nothing is out of the Bible that is supposed to be in it. He inspired it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is God's words written down in the language that we have and can understand, and it leads us and guides us into what he wants. So we know that God inspired this book. He inspired all 40 authors through the help of the Holy Spirit to write every word that is in here over the 1600 years to tell his love story of him redeeming a people for himself. But not only do we know that God inspired this book, if we continue going on, it says, and it is profitable for what? Teaching. It has been given to us to teach us. It teaches about where we have come from, from Adam and Eve. It teaches us about the love of God with saving people. It tells the history of Jesus that people historically have eyewitnesses accounts. Josephus writes about Jesus and this man named Jesus in the first century. Not only does it tell the history of Jesus and his life on earth, it tells about the nature of God, this God that is both loving but also wrathful. It tells us about what it means and, and what it means to be a Christian. It teaches us about the spread of Christianity throughout the first century. It teaches us what we must do to be saved. It also teaches us on what God expects of us, and it answers all of life's questions. And when I say it answers all of life's questions, I'm not saying that it as a whole, and I'm sitting there going, okay, math question today. I'm going to open up God's word and figure out what two plus two means. What do we say? Humanity has three problems. What? Sin, sorrow, and death. Those are all the problems we have in this world. Everything else fits into that, and God answers all three of those questions in his Bible. Not only is it inspired by God, not only does it teach us, but it also the next thing it says is it is for reproof. Reproof basically means it teaches us what God disapproves of. Things like same-sex marriage, premarital sex, divorce, lying, cheating, not loving one another. It teaches the things that God doesn't love and standards that God does not have for us to live off of. So it reproves us. It, it corrects us. It tells us what he doesn't like. It brings correction, number four. With correction, it sits there in God's word. It teaches us the correct way we are to live. And what does that produce in us? It's through repentance. Repentance is the only way that we can truly be corrected. It's like our parents. Our parents tell us to do something. We don't do it. What do they do? They correct us. Do they not? And if they don't correct you, they don't love you. That's what the Bible says. I'm being honest. The Bible says if you don't correct your child, you don't love them. So loving parents correct their children. We're not to provoke them. We're not to dishonor them, but they're not supposed to provoke us to anger. But we're supposed to Submit to them. It corrects us. 
The fifth thing it sits there and does, it tells, it trains us in righteousness. It trains us in the way that we are to go. Righteousness is a quality of, of living a moral life, but it's more than that. Righteousness is more than just living this good or bad life. Righteousness is living a life or living a standard higher than normal living. We are called to live a life that God desires for us. We are called to live this life of abstaining from these sins that he hates, that he lists when he reproves us and he tells us what to do and what not to do. We are called to do that. We are called to live a much higher life than most people are willing to live. And it is all to bring him glory. We're called to worship God. Worship is not just singing, guys. Worship is not just singing. Worship is the way we live our lives. Remember we talked about school? We should see school as an act of worship. When we go to school, our schoolwork, the way we interact with students, the way we interact on the ball field, the way we interact on the band, the way we interact at clubs, the way we interact in drama, the way we interact with our families, everything about us is supposed to be an act of worship to God, an act of obedience, an act of loving Him. So we're called to worship Him. And also, we are called to build his kingdom. That is part of righteousness, is building his kingdom. So the end result of all of this, the end result of everything we've talked about tonight, when the Bible is the word of God, the end result, that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. God does not leave us to figure this whole thing out on our own. He doesn't leave us to figure out how to get saved. He doesn't leave us to figure out how to handle different situations in life. He has given us his words. His words in a language that we can all understand, in a language that we can read. He gives us his word. His word teaches us about him. It teaches us what he does and what he does not like. It tells a story of God redeeming a people for himself. It tells us what we're supposed to do. It goes back to three problems. What are they? Sin, sorrow, and death. Let's think about what we deal with. Okay, I hate using this word, but I really don't know another word to use. Peer pressure. It just sounds dated to me. Peer pressure. Our friends wanting us to do stuff that we're not supposed to do. Or we know that's not right. What does peer pressure stem from? Of those three. Sin. Peer pressure is a result of sin, doing what we're not supposed to. Think about divorce. That's something I know many of you have had to experience in your families. But guys, let's think about divorce. Divorce is a result of what? Sin. And what does it produce in us? Sorrow. So how do we deal with that? We go to the Bible. We see what God says about that. Cancer. Cancer is a result of the fall. There wasn't cancer before the fall. But what does cancer produce? Death. death. And when death happens, what happens? Sorrow. Sorrow. Everything in life we deal with comes back to these three things. And God's word teaches us how to deal with this. God's word teaches us how we're supposed to love our spouse. How we're supposed to love our husband or our wife. That keeps us from falling into divorce. God's word teaches us about relationships. God's word teaches us how to deal with peer pressure. He teaches us if we're being bullied, he teaches us how to deal with that. You want to read somebody that was bullied or picked on? Go read the book of Acts. Go read what Paul had to go through. 
Yes, Paul was going through that because of his faith in God. And he was being put in jail and he was in prison. He was bitten. He was snake bitten. He was shipwrecked. He went through a lot of different things. But how does he handle it? How does Paul handle it? By worshiping God. He says, you know what? I'm going to go through this thing. I'm going to go through these problems. But God is enough for me. That's how we come back and deal with all the issues that we're going to deal with in life. In youth group, we could sit there and have lessons on dating. We could have lessons on how to handle this. Or we could have lessons on how to handle this. But ultimately, every problem we're ever going to face in life can be answered through the Bible. Every problem in life can be answered in this. Because it all sums up to sin, sorrow, or death. When it comes to sin, Christ died to take that away from us. We know that Christ is enough in that. When it comes to sorrow, God gives us a joy that only he can give, that we can't explain. God gives us the joy when we seek him daily. God gives us a joy that we don't understand when we worship him, we sing songs to him. When it comes to death, if we're a Christian, that is only temporary. Death is a temporary thing. That's why it says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Death is temporary for a believer. It's not something that lasts forever. As a follower of Christ, we must go to God's word to solve all the problems we will face. Guys, this is what the word of God is. The word of God gives us all the answers we need to know in life. And to be a Christian, the basics we have to understand is this is the word of God. And not only is this the word of God, but we know that we can trust God's word. All right? I'm going to pray for us and we'll be dismissed to small groups. Dear Lord, thank you so much for today. God, thank you for the many blessings you've given us. Lord, I pray tonight that, God, our students will seek you. God, I pray that our students will long to commune with you, God, that they will trust your word. God, they will seek you and praise you in everything they do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.